What's going on, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Be Shafe Daily. My name is Brendan Schaefer, alongside you here on Sunday, April 24th, as we break down the Cardinals weekend series against the Cincinnati Reds. Productive weekend overall for the Cardinals in Cincy. They took two out of three from the Reds. And maybe if you, if you looked at the Reds record coming into this series, you might have thought, gosh, it'd be nice to get the sweep, right? And certainly after winning the first two games on Friday and Saturday, as the Cardinals did over Cincinnati, you might have thought, uh, yeah, the sweep could be in the cards here. Unfortunately, Cardinals struggled to win the final game of the series, which is something that they've kind of made a recent trend of doing by getting things going early on in some series and then not being able to close the door on the finale. But a 4-2 win on Friday, a 5 nothing win on Saturday, and then today on Sunday, the bats kind of went quiet for the Cardinals. They lose 4-1. to Another so-so outing for Adam Wainwright. He's It seems like he gets a decision every time he takes the ball. He's 2-2 two and two now on the year. Had a couple good starts, a couple so-so starts. And even in a game like today, it's not like he got completely demolished. He gives up four runs to the Reds over the course of five innings pitched. And his ERA for the season, still below four. Gave up eight hits today, four earned runs, three walks is probably one of the biggest numbers that would jump out, at least to Wayno, who prides himself on having good command of his pitches. Wasn't able to do maybe everything that he would have liked on Sunday. 94 pitches, 58 strikes for Wainwright. Cardinals lose it 4-1. to one. He's 2-2 two and two on the year with an ERA of 3.86. But I mentioned that coming into the series, he looked at the record for the Cincinnati Reds and recognized that uh, they're at the bottom there in the National League Central Division. Below the Cubs, below even the Pittsburgh Pirates, who actually, as of this recording, are ahead of the Cubs. The Pirates are up to 8-8 eight and eight on the season. They took... Three of four, I believe it was, from the Cubs over the weekend. But the one game that they lost, the Pirates lost that game 21-0 on Saturday. Somehow the Cubs, in scoring 21 runs, didn't hit a home run. But they scored 21 runs, and the Pirates had three hits and didn't score a single run. But hey, the Pirates will take the three out of four at Wrigley, and it gets the Pirates to a record of 8-8. Eight and eight. The Cubs are at 7-9, and nine. and then the poor Reds, even after finding a way this weekend to get the final game of the series against the Cardinals, the Reds are not in good shape. It seems like ever since their president, Phil Castellini, the son of the owner, made those comments on the Reds' home opener day, uh, things have not been going well for Cincinnati. They're 13, or pardon me, they're 3-13 and 13 on the season They've lost nine of their last 10, and the win was obviously today, beating the Cardinals. So prior to that, they were on a heck of a losing skid. And with just three wins, they are the worst record in Major League Baseball, the Reds. That's who the Cardinals allowed to beat them on Sunday. But again, two out of three this weekend for the Cardinals. They're 9-5 and five on the season. Percentage points ahead of the Milwaukee Brewers, who've played two additional games. in Milwaukee is 10-6. and six. Milwaukee took on Aaron Nola in what ended up being a pretty big uh, pitcher's duel on Sunday night baseball, and the Brewers won that game one nothing. and the loss actually went to Corey Knable. So Aaron Nola didn't give up a run, but he was outdone by Eric Lauer. Nola went seven innings, 
nine strikeouts, one walk, one hit. And why do I say Lauer outdid him? He gave up five hits and a walk, but Lauer had 13 strikeouts over six innings for the Brewers. And that's what's interesting. We talk about this battle between the Brewers and the Cardinals that I think is is unfolding the way that a lot of people maybe thought that it would. I know the Brewers' lineup has not been really uh, a strong suit for that team just yet. But we talked about in the season opening, B-Shafe Daily, when I did the preview of the NL Central and kind of predicted the way I thought things would go in the division, I had the Cardinals in the wild card spot with the Brewers actually winning the NL Central same as they did a year ago. And the reason for it was their rotation. Brandon Woodruff is a stud. Corbin Burns is a stud, maybe even a bigger stud, the way he pitched last year. Freddie Peralta is really good. I liked Aaron Ashby coming out. He's kind of had a hot and cold start to the season, but he's another young arm for that team, kind of on the rise. And then Eric Lauer, he was not even one of the guys I was considering when I made that pick. But he's looking pretty good so far in the young season. ERA of 2.20. Josh Hader got his eighth save of the season for the Brewers. I mean, he's still he's still Josh Hader. There's no question about that. Devin Williams, St. Louis product, actually got the win tonight for Milwaukee. But let's get a little bit deeper into the Cardinals now that we've given you the breakdown of uh, the way things are going in the NL Central standings. Cardinals are 9-5. and five. What did we learn this weekend from the Cardinals against the Cincinnati Reds? Of course, the Cardinals returning home now. It was a pretty long road trip. Three cities as the Cardinals went from, where the heck did they go? They just wrapped up in Miami over the week, and then they, they went into uh, Cincinnati. And that's right, they were with uh, out in Milwaukee. They took on the Brewers for that four-game series. They, they scored the split. They got two out of three from the Marlins. Again, failing to win the final game, had the chance to sweep and couldn't quite get over the hump there on Thursday. And then uh, this weekend in Milwaukee, or pardon me, in Cincinnati over the weekend. Cardinals on Friday had the Apple TV game. I don't know how people felt about that. I did not get a chance to actually watch that one very closely on Apple TV. I, uh, But I asked on Twitter afterwards how people enjoyed the broadcast because I had heard and I had seen that the audio was actually off of the video by like two seconds, which was not really the, producti- the production quality that you'd hope to see from Apple in uh, taking the Friday night kind of a specialty game. But I knew coming into the series that uh, that game might be a challenge. Again, I mentioned, you look at the Reds' record, two wins on the year coming into the series. And if you're a Cardinals fan, you're thinking, okay, let's sweep them. But I said, I don't know about all that. Be careful because Hunter Green can be a pretty menacing opponent, and that's who you get in game one of the series. Rookie pitcher, 100 miles per hour, dastardly slider, really good stuff. But the Cardinals were able to get to Hunter Green in that game on Friday. And he couldn't get very deep into the outing. The walks killed him. And that's what you got to do against guys like that who have ridiculous stuff. You don't want to swing at the pitches that uh, they want you to swing at. And by working counts and being disciplined at the plate, the Cardinals caused Hunter Green, the talented rookie, to walk four batters. He also gave up four hits and then three runs in those three and a third innings that he pitched. And that was good. That was a good tone setter for the series for the Cardinals. They only scored one run off the bullpen for the Reds. And the rest of that game going over the course of five and two-thirds innings, they got just one run off the bullpen. But that was good to be able to get all the relievers in the game. Game one of the series, Cardinals were able to 
just have that discipline and, and work counts the way they needed to. And you saw another good outing from Steven Matz. I think that's a key consideration from Friday's game because it is going to continue to be a constant trend, a, a topic of conversation. What does that Cardinals rotation look like behind Adam Wainwright? And we kind of consider Adam Wainwright as this given almost at this point in his career. And maybe that's not fair to him. I mean, with how exceptional he was last year, and even in 2020, he was so good, especially at home for the Cardinals, that we just kind of count that he's going to be there and he's going to be great. And so far this season, I mean, you got to consider the guy's 40 years old and he's, he's you know, working to uh, get the job done every fifth day. But at the same time, 40 years old, going to turn 41 in August. And so there are going to be games where he doesn't have it. And that was, you could argue the case again. It just wasn't as sharp as you, or as even Wainwright himself would say he wanted to be on Sunday. Not his fault that the Cardinals only scored one run in Sunday's loss to the Reds. Nothing he can do about that anymore, especially now. Especially now that there's no uh, pitchers hitting. He's a designated hitter. That's no longer his job. But the Cardinals just coming up with a one run on Sunday, and so that was kind of the way that went. RBI came courtesy of Tyler O'Neill, who has struggled, man. He had, that, he had that really good start to the season, had the five RBIs on opening day. Good to see him get another ribby today because his average for the year, 213, OPS 623, was a guy that about after a week into the season, we were talking pretty extensively about him as an early extension candidate. And, of course, his salary for the year has still not been determined because I think he's got that uh, salary arbitration hearing coming up in May, I think early part of May. And unless they can come up with a, a solution for his long-term contract before then, that's that's going to be played out in the arbitration hearing for what he'll make for 2022. I don't know why that got pushed back so far. I guess there's so many players that had arbitration, and uh, the hearings usually take place in February, but with the lockout, they obviously couldn't do that. And you need to give both times... Uh, both sides, I should say, time to prepare for the hearings. So you can't just have a lockout end one day and then a week later say, hey, here, time for the hearings. It's just like a court case, and you've got to have both lawyers and both both sides and the agents be able to kind of state their case. And so I guess I, I just answered my own question. But that's still pending for O'Neill, but the Cardinals would certainly like to see him be able to come around offensively. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt, another guy, with when you look at the numbers, 236 average, 632 OPS, you'd think, oh, boy, I, you'd really like to see him come around as well. However, the one thing I would say, over the weekend, three-game series in Cincinnati, he had seven hits, had a three-hit game on Friday, and then two on Saturday, another two on Sunday. So he raised his batting average from, it was 170, 180. Now it's 236. The OPS went up probably about 100 points, now to 632. And Goldie has just historically not had great Aprils, but he's the numbers are always there. I, I'm still not all that worried about him. If you're the betting type, you look at maybe if there's the uh, the MVP markets for Goldsmith, you probably you're never going to find a better price than you would right now. Not to say he's going to win MVP. It's kind of hard to imagine he'd have to really go on a run, given where he's at right now. You know, Arenado, way he's performing in consideration for MVP, even after an 0 for four day on Sunday. Nolan uh, is at 364 for his batting average on the year and an OPS of 1153, 1,153 for the OPS. That's, yeah, that's MVP caliber to be sure. But he was 0 for 4 on Sunday. Albert went over. Base hit for Carlson. Yachty uh, went over as well. Really struggling to start the season. OPS at 276. Um, 
you know, we could spend more time talking about that. Tonight we won't. We're just doing kind of a quick series recap before I get to bed. And then uh, this week the Cardinals will return back home to Bush Stadium. It's like I like I was saying earlier before I get I get sidetracked so easily. It's unbelievable. But as I was saying earlier, it seemed like a very long road trip for the Cardinals going to three cities, Milwaukee, Miami, and then Cincy. And now they're welcoming the Mets into town on Monday, 645, and then 645 on Tuesday before the 1215. That'll be the getaway day for the Mets on Wednesday. But the Cardinals will remain home for the weekend. Long weekend series against the Diamondbacks Thursday through Sunday, 645. Then it'll be 715 on Friday. That's the only time you'll see 715 games this season, I believe, because typically in the past they've done April and early May, 645 games till the kids get out of school, and then they, they go 715 for the weekday games all the way up until September. Then school starts back up, and they go back to that 645 schedule. But now all weekday games Monday through Thursday, I believe, are 645 for the summer, which kind of sucks for me because I'm doing a radio show till 6. I have to bust my ass to the ballpark. From O'Fallon, nobody cares. <laughs> it's fine. It'll be fine. But uh, Saturday, Sunday, one uh, one fifteen starts. Diamondbacks v. Cardinals coming up this weekend. Or I should say next weekend. This coming weekend. How do you phrase that? When it's Sunday night. Anyway. Mets Cardinals coming to you from Bush Stadium Monday through Wednesday this week. And that'll be a big series because the Mets are in first place in the NL East. They've had a really good start to the season. And you'll see Max Scherzer as well. That'll be fun for the Cardinals, as I believe he's pitching Monday in that game. So that'll be the next game for the the Cardinals. But where was I? I was talking about Molina referencing the slow start to the season for him. And as I was saying, we could go in deeper to that. But for now, what I'll say is you're just going to see more Andrew Kisner this season, and that's probably for the best. Uh, You hope that Yachty can sort of turn things around offensively to at least be somewhat serviceable, but... As much as everybody loves Yachty, you can't make an argument that he's even been serviceable so far this season. And Sunday, a sign of things that you've just never seen from Molina throughout the course of his career. He goes 0 for 4, that's fine. But two strikeouts in the same game, that he doesn't have very many of those because as I've alluded to on B-Shape Daily prior to this episode, earlier this season, Albert Pujols, Yachty, or Molina, neither of them have ever had a season where they've struck out 100 times. They've always been in the double digits in the K category. Albert had a strikeout on Sunday as well. But Albert's still OPSing 883. You would, I mean, if you wanted to lock that in for the rest of the season, you would press the big red button and you'd say that was easy. That's a, You would take that. 276 OPS for, for Yachty. Yeah, that's a concern. But I think Kisner can handle himself. So to me, by the end of the year, if this is how Yachty is performing, Kisner should be starting half the games or more. Um, but I would say it may not progress quite to that level because you'd like to see Yachty in theory, bounce back a little bit. Bader, two for three. He's struggling so far, though. Just 615 for the OPS. So, I mean, you look across this lineup, and I haven't gotten to the elephant in the room yet, but I'm going to spend a little bit of time on that today. The elephant in the room of the shortstop position. But Bader, 615 OPS. O'Neill, 623. Goldsmith is up to 632, but he's trending in the right way, as I mentioned. Edmonds down to 963. He was well over 1,000. 0 for 4 on uh, on Sunday, and he's been batting more leadoff. They actually had Carlson in the lineup, but he was batting toward the bottom. So that's something that's interesting because under Mike Schilt and Mike Matheny before him, you wouldn't have seen that kind of quick trigger, I think, with a lineup change. They almost waited too long in previous manager 
regimes to, to make these changes. And I'm not going to say that Ali is making the moves too quickly, but he, he put Edmund in the in the leadoff position on, on Sunday, and that's something that we haven't really seen in the past because, I mean, he starts out at the bottom. But I will give credit to Ollie for this because I had said previously on B-Shape Daily that when they face a lefty, that's the time to go ahead and do it. You could make an argument that Edmund could be the leadoff man against lefties pretty much on a permanent basis. I would have said if he'd performed better on Sunday, they might have gone to that and, and made a company policy. Now we'll see. Carlson did have one base hit, but he's hit, he's OPSing 535. That's lower than uh, lower than Bader, lower than O'Neill, lower than Goldschmidt at this point. A little bit concerned about that because for Carlson, here's the thing. Like when we talk about the Cardinals outfield, and I've made reference to Randy Rosarena, you know, you've got Adelise Garcia that's that I think he's still with Texas. But some of these outfielders that have gone on, I, I haven't looked lately to see what Lane Thomas is doing, but I know he's playing for the Nationals. The outfielders that, you know, it's been a big talk, topic of conversation, the outfielders that go somewhere else and they start to thrive, and then you go, oh, crap, why don't the Cardinals, why didn't they keep him, why didn't they give him playing time, etc. But when you look at the team, you go, well, O'Neill is your guy, Bader's, you know, your guy. I think most Cardinals fans have come around on Bader just with his last couple of years of better offensive production. You know what he brings defensively, so you're fine with that. Now, if he's still OPSing 615 in July, we'll have a different conversation. But for now, I'm just going to chalk up most of this to small sample size when when guys are struggling early. But Carlson, I, I do want to hone in on a little bit deeper because he was kind of anointed, right? Like this top prospect and this guy that you had big expectations for. 2020 was pretty uneven for him. He really struggled, then went back down to Memphis. Or I should say there was no Memphis in 2020, but it was the alternate site. And then came back up toward the end of the 2020 season. You remember they were actually batting him clean up for a time in that uh, playoff series against the Padres, the uh, the three-game series. But his OPS that season was 616, only hit 200 for a batting average. Not a good year. 2021, he was much better, 780 OPS, 266 average, 343 on base, which you love as leadoff caliber, and then the 437 slug, but only 18 home runs for Carlson. I say only because I feel like for a guy that just had that kind of hype surrounding him, you wanted to be a 20 to 25 homer guy, and you'd like to see that, that, you know, maybe some more doubles mixed in. He did have 31 doubles, though, so that's kind of hard to beat. But I think instead of 18 homers, you'd say, Ideal Carlson season, it's 24 homers instead of 18, which bumps you up to about 75, 80 RBIs instead of 65. And maybe fewer than 152 strikeouts, which is what he had last year. But the 780 on the OPS, you're cool with that because you know he's a really good defensive right fielder as well. But for you've only got three outfield spots, right? So with what Tyler O'Neill did last year, you're like, great. OPS was like 912 or something. Maybe it was even higher than that. I'm not going to look it up right now. But it was, I know it was above 900. And he had the power. He had the defense. Won a gold glove. That's great. Bader, we talk about supreme defense in center field and the offense. You can kind of consider a little bit more of a bonus. But that's if the guys in the corners are both doing their jobs. And Dylan Carlson, as a right fielder, that's a position that's got to be – it's got to give you some offensive punch. And it's still too early in the season for me to start – Asking about Dylan Carlson, but yeah, I mean, the numbers aren't there yet. 218 average, 535 OPS. He's slugging below 300. Has just, uh, well, he doesn't have a home run on the season. Opening day, asked Ali Marmol what you like about Carlson, and, and 
his kind of uh, mentality and the tone he can set as a leadoff hitter. And he said, I like the notion that we could be up one nothing after one pitch when Dylan's batting leadoff. Well, that hasn't happened yet. They, he hasn't gotten his first home run. Maybe this week at Bush it'll happen. But just kind of a slow start to the season for him. And, and I'm not saying it, it's an indictment on him as a player or, or what his career could be, but the Cardinals really do need Dylan Carlson, I think, to pan out. And they need him to pan out more so than than just like an average to slightly above average player. I'm not saying he's got to be a superstar, but he's got to be that consistent drumbeat for this team. And, and, I, and I still think he can be, but if you're looking for areas of the team that can pay, potentially improve from now at the end of April to you look at the all-star break where you hope this team would be, Carlson certainly, uh, I would say he's probably at the top of that list because we're already seeing Goldsmith start to trend that direction. And, and certainly Carlson... I think is is expected, or at least in your predictive anticipations, would have a better offensive season than a Bader, or uh, you know Corey Dickerson's 4.43 OPS. I don't know. We we'll see what his opportunities look like, but he hasn't really impressed very much so far for the five million dollars uh, salary that he's getting. But the other name, if you're talking about guys that you would like to see pick it up at the plate, boy, Paul DeYoung. That was that was what I was alluding to earlier with the shortstop position. He did not get to start on Sunday. And I don't, I don't know that you know. You can call it a day off because he's your presumptive starter, but it's gonna, it's gonna get dicey, right? It's gonna get to a point where is this more of a timeshare between Edmundo Sosa and DeYoung? Is that a, is could that be the case down the road? If you end up looking at the numbers that DeYoung's putting up, it's not just the numbers; he just doesn't look good. One thirty-nine. It's hard to look good hitting one thirty-nine, but. That's where he is right now. The, the on-base is 262, so he's at least had six walks so far this season for Paul DeYoung in 42 plate appearances, which is a pretty good walk rate. I mean, that's probably 15 to 18% doing some quick math. So it, it at least makes his OBP not look drastically problematic, but no power, 278 slugging percentage. Has one home run on the year, two doubles. Again, 42 plate appearances. He was great in spring. I mean, he looked locked in in spring training. OPS of 1,362. It's almost a 1,400 OPS. He was slugging over 800. OBP over 500 in spring. He was batting 435 with two homers. Three doubles, nine RBIs. He was fantastic. I don't know what's happened. He looks like a different guy at the plate. And again, they gave him the day off on Sunday. Makes sense. You see how he performed on Saturday. Was not ideal. I believe he had three strikeouts. I'm kind of struggling to pull it up here. Give me a second. Yeah, for DeYoung on Saturday, it was not what you want to see. I mean, 0 for 3, 3Ks. He did take a walk. But he's in kind of a stretch right now where if he's bringing that into the field too, that's that's another problem that hasn't looked exactly crisp at, at shortstop defensively all the time. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is because I did. I came in, I bought back in on Paul DeYoung at the beginning of the year, and I said, I think he's going to bounce back. He's going to be the shortstop that the Cardinals thought they had, the shortstop that they need him to be. And now I'm I'm sample size searching uh, in an intentionally negative way, looking at the last day he didn't get a hit, and then I cut it off right before that so the numbers look worse than they are. But the numbers are what they are, so... Selective endpoints, but I will say his last eight games, seven starts, 23 at-bats, 26 plate appearances, 10 strikeouts, three walks. So he's hitting 0.87, 192 on base, and a 130 slug 
over his last seven starts. And then there was a uh, fielding appearance that he had in one of those games. So, yeah, I mean, you've got to be better than that if you're Paul DeYoung. And he's already signed that contract. People talk about trade him away. There's You're not going to get anything for Paul DeYoung right now. He's got to find a way to perform and, and step it up at the plate. Or you will see more Mundo Sosa. And I don't want to disparage Mundo Sosa because I think he'd be a very fine player. But I think Paul DeYoung's upside is still higher. And and you, with what he can bring with the power in his game when it's there, I mean, when it's not, you, what are we talking about? But what, you've seen it in the past for Paul DeYoung that he's had power. And I think that's what the Cardinals are kind of clinging to here and saying, hey, this is a guy that hit 30 home runs in a season. Back in 2019, he was an all-star. As a rookie, he had 25 homers and an 857 on base, or pardon me, OPS. But right now his OPS is 540, and he's hitting 139 with really no power to speak of. So it's just, there is a narrative, and and it's why we don't buy into offseason narratives all the time. We talk about him because there's not a lot else to talk about in December when articles get written, but it's kind of like you're, you're, you're going to see the, the fluff at that point. You're going to see the articles that are positive in nature because it's the off season and the world is their oyster and anything's possible. And article about all the swing changes he made. We talked about uh, Derek Gould wrote it. Talk about not just swing changes, but changes to his approach. That was the whole thing that we said, if he can change the approach to where he's not having those games where he, strikes out three times and he kind of disappears and looks lost at the plate, then you're good to go. But, I mean, that's kind of what we're back to. We're seeing him kind of fall into the similar trap that he that he's fallen into in recent seasons where he has struggled. 2020, he had a 671 OPS, and you say, well, he had COVID. Well, it was a shortened season. Maybe that impacted him, and, and it's a small sample size. Okay, 2021, 674, pretty much the identical season. From an OPS standpoint, he had a little better power than he did in 2020. The slugging percentage was 390, which was about 40 points higher than the previous year. But the OBP was lower, and the batting average was drastically lower. He hit 197 last year. So, unless you're an elite, bonafide gold glover defensively, which he's not. You know, he's a good defender. He could someday win a gold glove if his offense gives him enough credibility to stay in the lineup every day. He's he's a good defender, but you know, he's he's not a baiter where you know that the gold glove is inevitable and so you kind of mentally treat the offense as a bonus. And then Bader has turned his offense around, not so far this year, but the last couple of years that OPS has been in the high seven hundreds. That's where Paul DeYoung needs to get. He needs to get back to, you know, his career average is seven fifty two for an OPS. Career batting average of 239. He needs to be a 240 to 250 hitter who is going to run into some homers and get that OPS to about 760 with above average defense. And, and if that's what you do as Paul DeYoung, you're probably a three to four win player. Wins above replacement. That's that's your war, three and a half. And you would take that from your shortstop position because it's probably on an ideal Cardinals team. Bader has a little higher war in most years if if a defensive war is uh Big factor there. You'd hope that Carlson can get to be a three to four award player. Tyler O'Neill should be above that. Arenado above that. Goldschmidt should be above that. And so if if DeYoung is your sixth best offensive contributor, and, and Tommy Edmond maybe even would be above that with what he brings defensively, especially the way he's hitting this season. That's that's kind of the, the blueprint that would make the Cardinals successful is Paul DeYoung just being a 
a league average to maybe slightly above league average offensive player and a, a slightly above average defensive shortstop, and you've got something there. But we'll see. I mean, again, I don't know. I don't want to limit Sosa or tell you what Edmundo Sosa can't do, but I don't think he's going to be a power guy at this at this level, right? He's going to be more of a spark plug. If he can get on base, we know he gets hit by lots of pitches, but if he could be a batting average guy that, you know, you, you got to figure how high does the batting average for Edmundo Sosa have to be for you to accept that he's probably not going to give you much power because he, in 2021, he slugged 389, which again, that was basically what DeYoung did. He gives you doubles, eight doubles for uh, Edmundo last season, which isn't a ton, but he had also four triples. He still did hit six homers. That's probably more than I would have pegged him for. Probably should have paid better attention to that. But doesn't strike out quite as much. Hit 271, bat to ball, and, and did take enough walks and got hit by enough pitches to have an on-base near 350. A little lower this year, but he's had 13 plate appearances, so you can't really count that. But I'm just saying, if you're fantasizing and you're chasing upside with your shortstop position, at a certain point, you just have to accept reality for what it is, and, and it needs to become more of a timeshare where you play the hot hand. And, and I think at this point, with how poorly we've seen DeYoung perform at the plate right now, you, you almost have no other choice but to give some more opportunities to Sosa. Down the line, is it possible they would go to Tommy Ebbin at shortstop once Nolan Gorman is ready, and, and that would be another way to get a power bat into the lineup at second base since uh, we've seen Gorman, who just keeps homering down in Memphis, play some second base, he could second base, he could DH, whatever. I don't know if the Cardinals would consider that. It would almost have to be that Paul DeYoung is out of the picture and they they trade him away for almost nothing. And you don't want to trade an asset at, at its lowest point because that's not a good value proposition. But we've certainly seen uh, Nolan Gorman knocking on the door and say, hey, eight home runs and 62 plate appearances is obscene. You know, the OPS is over 1,100. He's slugging the crap out of the ball, hitting 316. On base is 371 for Nolan Gorman at Memphis. 20 strikeouts, though, in 62 plate appearances. He's gotten a little bit better. I think the last I, I checked was he was at 18 about a week ago. So he's doing a little better there, but still nearly 30% of his plate appearances have ended in a strikeout, right about 30%. So they might want to have that address but that also kind of just might be the nature of his game with with great power comes great uh risk for strikeout potential but for Gorman if he works his way to where they've got to consider him in the daily lineup and the more the season goes along if the Cardinals begin to struggle again they're nine and five at this point in the season they're still in first place tied for first place at least they don't have to worry about you know kind of underperforming a little bit offensively but when that slump comes if if it does for the team and you end up losing three or four or you lose five or six at one point and, and you're trying to identify, okay, what's the reason we're losing? If the answer is, well, the offense has just not been consistent enough, that's when the clamoring for Gorman will get even more significant, and, and it'll have merit at that point as well. Not that it doesn't have merit now, but they're still trying to find out, what do we think of Corey Dickerson? We paid him $5 million. He's a lefty bat. Gorman would be a lefty kind of DH candidate bat, and so you can't just release a guy after a month if you paid him $5 million and people might say, well, that's why I wasn't a fan of the Dickerson signing when it happened. I was neutral toward it. I thought it made sense given where, where they were, but I also didn't think he'd be OPSing 440, and so they got to figure out what his fit's going to be because if that's the production you're getting, you probably could have saved the money and just ran out Lars Newpar and saw what he could do, and now you're, you're seeing Newpar kind of get squeezed, and he's not really playing 
very frequently, and you don't you don't maybe know what you have in him. You know what Corey Dickerson is as a player. He's not really going to be your future, but the Cardinals thought he could be their present, and he just hasn't quite lived up to the expectations so far. But again, it's difficult. You're talking about a DH, and Ali Marmol this week did a good job of getting players out of the lineup, giving them a day off so that he could work the bench guys in, but still trying to identify who that hot hand is going to be. And from that left side in particular in the DH category, who's going to kind of take control there? The answer still might be Nolan Gorman, but I just don't think we're going to quite see that yet, barring an injury where they can call him up and say, all right, the guy that we're sitting on the bench, we can live with that because he's not producing and we've given him ample time to to try and fix it. Now we're going to go a different direction. But because the team's winning, you're in a decent position. I mentioned the, the starting pitching has been really solid by and large, which which we didn't necessarily think would be the case at the beginning of the season when you had Wainwright and you were looking at everybody else going, boy, I don't know what this is going to I don't know what this is going to end up being. Jordan Hicks had a solid outing. I don't know if we've even podcasted since that because I think that was Thursday night. So I could talk about that in the Miami series. He went three innings, gave up one run back on Thursday. The two walks you don't love, but the three strikeouts are enticing in three innings. 46 pitches, moderately efficient. That's that's about 95 pitches over six innings. 92 pitches over six innings. That's perfectly efficient. Didn't throw as many strikes maybe as you'd like to see, 25 out of 46 for Hicks. But you liked him mixing up the arsenal, right? You saw some change-ups. The slider's a really good pitch. You know that the uh, sinker's going to be there right on the, uh, the the bar of triple digits. And so I think Hicks has shown, hey, I can not only can I hold down the fifth spot in the rotation when I get stretched out, uh, stretched out a little bit further, I can be a weapon. I can be, forget being a fifth starter, I can be, a legitimate number two, number three type. And that's what the Cardinals would love to see from Hicks. Still waiting on Flaherty to get back. It'll happen. He's working his way back. And by the way, that Marlins rotation in a year or so, like it's already pretty nasty. Trevor Rogers was their best pitcher last year, one of their best pitchers, and he's not even probably their top three so far in performance this season. Jesus Lazardo, Cardinals saw him. He's really good. Pablo Lopez stymied the Cardinals, as did Sandy Alcantara. Add in Rodgers, that's already four guys. Sixto Sanchez is a prospect if he can get healthy. Max Meyer was like the number two or number three pick in the draft a year or two ago. He's a stud at double A. High expectations, at least for his future. Marlins are going to be ridiculous on the pitching side in about 12 months. Don't know what they're going to do about hitting. Jesus Sanchez, really good. I, I think I like him even maybe better than Jazz Chisholm. He's kind of the Jazz is kind of their star offensively. Other than that, though, they don't have a whole lot going for them offensively, but that pitching will get you far. And that's why the Cardinals have sort of wanted to, you know, make sure that things were okay there in that rotation. And you kind of, if you're a Cardinals fan, you're kind of on pins and needles wondering, okay, do they have enough? Well, mentioned Matt's on, on Friday, five innings, gave up one run. That's solid. And then Saturday was really encouraging with Dakota Hudson. Six and two-thirds innings, and that was a shutout win for the Cardinals, 5 nothing on Saturday over the Reds. Hudson went six and two-thirds, just two hits. Had four strikeouts. The four walks, you want to see that get fixed. He's always kind of been a little bit of a guy that tinkers around the zone a little too much. But the fact that he can scatter those walks along with a couple of hits and have the the whip, the walks plus hits per innings pitched, were, it was below one on that game because he threw over six innings and only allowed six walks plus hits. So 
ERA 3.95 for the season. That's the the efficient Hudson that you need. The guy that can go seven innings. And the reason he can do that is because even while walking guys, he's going to get double plays. He's going to get a lot of ground ball outs. He had eight ground outs in that game on, on Saturday. It's exactly what you expect from Hudson and, and hopefully something he's able to continue. Andre Pallante uh, looked good again on that Saturday game. An inning and a third gave up a hit, but no runs and a strikeout. And Cody Whitley, how about him? I, I don't think he's a name that we've really mentioned much on this podcast, uh, at least so far this season. But in four games, he's still scoreless, four and a third. And he's a guy that going back a couple of years, you remember the COVID year, he was coming into that season looking in spring, like, again, back in March before the shutdown happened in March of 2020. He looked like he was going to make the roster and be – Quickly, someone who ascended into an eighth or even a ninth inning role. Guy who was a former closer at the minor league level, locked it down for Memphis in 2019 as their primary closer and just came on and, and he was pitching lights out. But then COVID happened and he got COVID and then he got hurt while he was on the COVID list. So you didn't see him for much of 2020. Came back at the very end of the year. And then last year didn't quite have that same level of momentum for Cody Whitley because he might have even had another injury last year but just didn't really get his opportunity to necessarily get into the the thick of things in like the circle of trust in the Cardinals bullpen in 2021, despite having a 2.49 ERA, only appeared in 25 games because he missed part of the season. And so it makes a lot of sense that now you're seeing Cody Whitley kind of emerging and, and could develop into one of those trusted relievers, 7, 8, and 9 territory. He took the ninth inning on that Saturday game. But that was a 5 nothing game, so not a safe situation. But keep an eye on Cody Whitley. He's he's looking good. And the Cardinals' bullpen, for me, that's that's a strength of the team at this point. And we've talked about that being the case. But I think it, it, it bears repeating. Because when you talk about the offense, and we, we've identified and we've already talked about in this episode the players that you want to see improve offensively and be able to take that next step with the consistency in their games, We've talked a lot about the rotation. Look, I think Wainwright is going to be Wainwright. He wasn't great on Sunday, but you know what you're going to get. Michaelis has improved. He can be that guy that can throw 190, 200 innings if he can stay efficient and stay away from the home run ball. Uh, Dakota Hudson is very similar in that way. Matt's still a little bit more of a wild card, but I've I've liked what I've seen from him, and I think you can expect uh, him to continue grinding out those five, six, seven inning outings and, and giving up fewer than two or three runs. I don't know that he'll be in a quality start machine the way that I think Michaelis and even Hudson can be just because sometimes Matt's a little bit inefficient only going to go five or so five and a third five and two thirds may not get to that six inning benchmark every time but when it's on a couple of starts ago you saw it was on for him he can certainly be one of those guys that you rely upon if he stays healthy he's never been an innings eater because he's had little injuries or different things that happen and then Hicks is your number five but you know Flaherty is kind of waiting in the wings there and if Flaherty comes back, Hicks can go into that Palante role where he's a multi-inning weapon in the the sixth, seventh, and eighth, and that could be very valuable because you got a guy that goes five innings. If say, say a Stephen Matz goes five and gives up two, and and you're in a two-two game after five, well Hicks can go six, seven, and eight. Maybe you score a run during those innings, and and now suddenly you're up three to two, and you go right to Gallegos, and you're done. That's the game. You can steal wins that way with good relievers that can go multiple innings. And and so I'm not saying that Hicks has to be relegated to that. I'd love for him to be able to stay in the rotation, but we know that that would probably mean another injury to somebody else if uh, you expect Flaherty back and then the other guys are already locked into their spots. But what I wanted to mention about the bullpen, 
because we talked about the hitting. We've talked about the rotation being uh, something that's ascending, I think, at this point. The bullpen ERA, 1.95 ERA for the Cardinals relievers this season, which is second best in Major League Baseball to only the Giants, who have a 1.71 collective ERA. So we've seen guys like Helsley, Gallegos, Palante, we mentioned. Hicks had some outings as a reliever. They've got uh, Cody Whitley, right? There's a lot of names in that bullpen that uh, you trust and you feel good about. And so I think the Cardinals are in a good spot right now. I think this series against the Mets is going to be a particular challenge and a, and a test to see how they perform against some better competition. We've seen them kind of beat up on the Pirates. You got to beat up on the Marlins a little bit, the Reds, and, and you're taking series from all those teams. That split against the Brewers was very interesting, and that's kind of more what I'm curious about. How are the Cardinals going to perform against other top teams? Because it's always great to be able to take the gimme wins from the poor teams, and you have to do that too. You can't let up against those types of teams and expect to get to the 90-95 win benchmark that will be required to either make the playoffs or win the division, whatever your goal ends up being as you, you see it within striking distance there at the end of a season. But I am particularly curious how they will fare against the Mets. It'll be Max Scherzer, as I mentioned, on Monday, going up against Miles Michaelis, who looking to build on a couple of really strong outings. He's 1-0 for the season, 1.76 ERA for Miles, 13 Ks, whereas Max Scherzer, 3-0, 2-5 ERA, 23 strikeouts on the young season. So looking forward to that game on Monday night. We'll be back with B-Shape Daily to wrap it all up, ideally late Monday and, and ready for your uh, inbox or your uh, subscription, whatever the heck you call it, on Tuesday morning. So make sure you subscribe to B-Shape Daily. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. For all the latest Cardinals information throughout the season, make sure you stay locked and loaded here and subscribe. And if you're Apple Podcasts in particular, I think you can also do it on Spotify. But on Apple especially, give us a review of the podcast so we can get nice, good reviews, and uh, maybe that'll help more people find the podcast and be able to get up the charts a little bit. That would mean a lot to me if you if you do enjoy the podcast. If you don't like it, uh, don't review it because then my numbers will tank. No, I'm just kidding. Appreciate you guys, as always, for listening, and we will talk to you next time on Be Shaped Daily. Peace.